Well, I think you've always got to be a little bit concerned when elders in the church still have teddy bears. I checked with Lauren before. I said, is that your teddy bear, Lauren? She said, no, it's my dad's. The concern only heightens. One of my favourite movies is, and don't judge me for this, Jane Austen's Emma, starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, It was made in the late 1990s, but I think it's a classic. One of the things which I love about it the most, apart from the historical accuracy and the costumes, is the dialogue. The words are so carefully chosen that it makes you want to stop and replay the scene again so that you can savour them. I enjoy this movie so much, I introduced my son Ben to it during the week and he said to me, Dad, this is really good, but as two blokes watching this on a Friday night, it somehow feels a little wrong. (laughs) One of the most powerful scenes, if you are familiar with the story, if you've watched the movie, is when Emma cuts down the eccentric uh, Miss Bates at a picnic. The well-meaning but quite quirky, you might say, spinster is devastated by the central characters put down. And it all but destroys their friendship. And there's this heartwarming, uh, heartbreaking rather scene later on when she goes to Miss Bates's house to try and apologise and you just see Miss Bates quickly go out of the room saying, please tell her that I'm lying down. It's just heartbreaking. Emma is rebuked by her love interest, Mr Knightley, who reduces her really in a very godly way, but in a very strong way too, to tears, because he rebukes her for how she spoke to Miss Bates. If you haven't seen the movie, then I'd really recommend it because it's really quite edifying as well as entertaining. They just don't make movies like that anymore. But the whole point of what I'm trying to say here is the power of our words, of choosing the right time to say the right thing but also in the right way. And that's precisely what we're going to look at today from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles or in your corner posts. And uh, it's not a long reading today. And even that seems apt, as you'll see in just a moment. This is God's Word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. And you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, 
So the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how good it is to meet together as your people in corporate worship. How good it is to sing praises to you, to confess our sins to you, knowing that we can do that with confidence because you are good and faithful. You are strong and kind. You are merciful. Lord, we want to pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us now as we look at your word. Give us ears to hear, strengthen us, encourage us, rebuke us as the case may be. But may we go from here this morning, Lord, stronger for it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old children's saying which I'm sure you're all familiar with and you've probably used it yourself, maybe when you're younger, maybe you've said it to your children. It goes like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I can still remember my mum teaching, uh, teaching it to me when someone at school had said something particularly mean. It's meant to help you not to take notice of what someone says and not to be troubled by it. The only problem is it's completely false. It's the worst bit of parenting advice ever given. Name calling and the words people use do hurt. What the wounds behind or the wounds behind what people say can stay with us for years and years and years, can't it? So much so that I've heard someone rightly interpret the saying as really it should go like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names, names they break our hearts. What we say is incredibly important. And as Simon, I think, so helpfully pointed out, you can't take them back. They words have the power to kill or the power to bring life. Just take, for instance, the ultimate act of how we are saved. The Apostle James says, He, that's God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And then just a couple of verses later, he goes on to write that we should get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word that is planted in you, which can save you. 
you see how it's believing the word about Jesus that we are saved. In the same way, the Apostle Peter puts it like this. He says in verse 23 of 1 Peter chapter 1, if you're taking notes, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For, quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And then he says this, and this is the word that was preached to you. Notice once again how being born again spiritually is connected simply to believing the word about Jesus. That's an imperishable seed. And then finally, the Apostle Paul famously says in Romans chapter 10, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See those two connections? Confess with your mouth, say a word, Jesus is Lord, and then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess, that you speak words and are saved. You see, how we receive God's free gift of salvation is through a confession with our lips by our words, by, by the statement, the, you only have to be, you can be saved with, with, with uttering, isn't this incredible? Three words, Jesus is Lord and you're saved. The thief on the cross next to Jesus, if you remember earlier this year, said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, that's all he said to him. And he said, today, I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise. Paul says, you don't even need that much words. You just say, Jesus is Lord. And what is true, can I say, for salvation is also true for judgment. For the unforgivable sin is also a verbal act made with our mouths of rejecting the gospel, of rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Using our words to forsake God's forgiveness, which obviously puts ourselves in a position where we can never be forgiven. Hence, it's an unforgivable sin because you put yourself outside the realm of forgiveness. It's only through the miracle of the new birth that we receive Christ's offer of salvation, and it's only through his word. Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy against the Spirit will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Most significantly of all, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is described in John chapter 1 
as being the Word. The one who was with God in the beginning, as well as the one who was God. That's why it's so incredible when Moses sits before the burning bush and he says to God, what is your name? Remember, the Lord says to him, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And then you notice what happens in John's Gospel? Seven times Jesus says, I am. I am the gate. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. We often think of the last bit, but the most radical thing of all that the Jews understood is that Jesus was claiming to be God. That's why they stoned him. That's why they tried to execute him for blasphemy. How can you, they say, a mere man claim to be God? And remember, Jesus says in John 7, 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was. It's not saying he eternally, you know, or he existed at that time. That would be a great claim in and of itself. He's saying, I am. I am the one that spoke out of the burning bush. The Apostle John goes on to say then that everyone who receives Jesus as the word, that Jesus is the Lord, has the right to become children of God. So clearly words and Jesus as the word are very, very important. Now, as we've been making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've constantly come up against a Hebrew word, hebel. Or literally, it's the same name, interestingly enough, as Abel. Everything is Abel, Hebel. It literally, translated into English, is something like vanity or meaningless. Or if you want to be really literal, vapour. Life is vapour. It's used a total of 35 times in the book. And what it means is that because of... Because of death, everything in this life is transitory. Everything is fleeting. Everything is passing away. Nothing has meaning. Nothing lasts. Everything under the sun since the fall is fleeting. It's like the morning mist or the vapour of our breath on a cold winter's morning. Everything under the sun is hevel. It's able. In fact, it's significant, isn't it? You think of Abel, first man to be murdered, and you get the tragedy of what Solomon is saying. Everything is tragic because death takes it away. But then all of a sudden in chapter 5, the focus, I think, completely changes. And significantly, the name of God is used over and over again. In fact, if you include the reference to him as he in verse 4, it's used no less than seven times in these seven verses. What's more, the word hevel or vanity is used only once. The entire passage, though, is about what makes for meaningful as opposed to to meaningless use of our words. 
And that's important because since Solomon says that life under the sun is in and of itself meaningless, you might think that what we say doesn't really matter because all of our work, all of our accomplishments, all of our money that you can see and feel and touch, most of all, our own lives will pass away. How then or how much more are our words the equivalent of Hevel? I mean, aren't our words even less tangible than those things? It's not like you and I can touch or, or see our words. I mean, I've got them print, some of them printed down in front of me, but my words go out and then they're gone. That's truly Hevel, isn't it? They're even more intangible than the morning mist for no sooner do we say something and it is gone. And as the sound of our voice fades, so too does the impact of our words have in this world too, right? No way. No. As we saw before, that is anything but the case. The impact of our words, for good or for ill, continues for years and years to come. I don't want to embarrass us all, but I'm sure if I said, put up your hand if you still remember some of the things your teachers said to you while you were at school. Whether it be a word of discouragement or a word of support, I'm pretty sure we could all put up our hands. And that's exactly what Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, says here as well. He says that our words are surprisingly meaningful and therefore anything but Hevel. Now, if you take a look at your sermon outlines, sorry for the extended introduction, you'll see that there are two distinct ways that Solomon addresses this. And the first is when our worship of God is pagan rather than biblical or we might even say Christian. Or as Solomon says in verse 1, even more dramatically, when we offer the sacrifice of fools, the opposite of wisdom. Tragically, it's something that is deeply dishonouring and displeasing to God. And hence, it's something we should consciously repent of and refrain from doing. What is it that Solomon is referring to? What is it that is that could be so wicked that it's described as being not only foolish but evil. Well, take a look again with me at verse 2. Because this way of thinking is so subtle that we're often tempted to fall back into it as Christians. What is it? It's that we think that God can be manipulated or is more agreeable or more gracious when we pray for a really long time. Solomon says in verses 2 and 3, Do not, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Have you ever noticed yourself falling into this kind of 
trap or error. You think that your prayers will be more effective if you spend a lot longer praying. But it's not the case. Remember the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which we read from earlier, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. See, that's pagan prayer. Do not be like them, he says. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. We're not telling God anything. As if God is in heaven going, oh, I hadn't thought of that. I'm so glad you brought that to my attention. There is something profoundly pagan in thinking that God will be persuaded by what I refer to as crassly pester power. You know, it's like the little kid at the shop that if they just ask 20 times for the lolly, thinks that you'll cave. Now, can I just say Buddhism prides itself on this form of prayer? And they're not alone. Have you ever seen the prayer wheels or the prayer flags in places, you know, around the world, such as Nepal? If you're watching a hiking movie, you'll see them. The thinking is that every time the prayer flag flaps, because it has a prayer written on it, or every time the prayer wheel spins, then another prayer goes up to God. And so you're basically bombarding God with all of this, well, I'll just call it white noise. And all of your requests are just bombarding heaven, so he just has to respond. It's all about getting God's attention or accumulating enough spiritual merit so that he has to give you what you want. But the problem with this kind of prayer is that according to Jesus, it's fundamentally unbiblical. It shows that you don't trust God. You don't acknowledge him like Yako said before, for who he is. He's not loving. He's not gracious. He's unjust. He's uncaring. Maybe even a little deaf. Do you see how blasphemous that is? There's a lot of, I think, even Christian people I've come across who misunderstand uh, this and they'll, they'll say to me, well, what about the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18? That's where this lady, this widow, keeps pestering the unjust judge, remember, for justice. And the unjust said, uh, sorry, the unjust judge says that even though he doesn't care about people and he doesn't fear God, he's going to do what she asks just to get some peace and quiet, just to put it to a stop. And so a lot of even Christian people think, well, that's how we should pray. We should pester God like that. If God doesn't give it to me at first, I should just keep on praying. I should just keep on pestering him. He wants us to persevere in pestering him. But can I just say, friends, that's not the point of the parable at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. 
The point of the parable is that that's what God is not like. That's why you should pray. Because God is not like an unjust judge. You should pray and not give up because you don't have to do what the the persistent widow did because you have a father in heaven that knows you and knows what you need even before you ask it. Unlike the unjust judge, our heavenly father is perfect. Our heavenly father is just. And because he loves us and cares for us, he doesn't have to be pestered but simply humbly asked. Jesus tells that parable to encourage us to keep praying, not to pressure God or even worse, pester him into giving us what we want, but because he knows that we have a loving and altogether righteous heavenly father that gives good gifts to his children. You see the difference? Remember how Jesus says that Our Father in heaven knows what we need even before we ask him. And as such, we don't have to keep pestering to get our attention. Not only that, but we don't have to go on and on and on. As though God can be manipulated into answering our prayers simply because we've asked him so many times. You know, friends, can I just say, sometimes we just have to accept that the answer is no. Sometimes it will be wait, not right now. But just like, you know, the spoilt child, and we've all been there, either as a parent or as children ourselves, sometimes you just need to listen to your mum and dad that goes, no, it's for your good. Having chocolate before dinner is not a good idea. Maybe it's a question of wait. Maybe it's a question of after dinner will be a good idea. Or as sometimes my... Younger child will know. Can I have a sip of your beer? No. It's going to be a longer wait. Like another 10 years wait. You see, when we pester God, what does that say about God? That he doesn't really care. He doesn't really love us. He's not gracious. He's not merciful. That's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of paganism. The Lord Jesus Christ puts it like this later on in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, a rock? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? There's no parent here who would do that. And Jesus says we're evil comparison to God. God is so good that in him is light and there is no darkness at all. You see, here's the key insight that Solomon gives us. It's that because God is transcendent, that's just a technical way of saying that because he is in heaven and sees everything and we are on earth and only see a little bit, Because God is transcendent, then our words are not hebel. They are if they go on and on and on, but in and of themselves they are not hebel. 
even though they might appear to be the most transitory, the most insubstantial thing in all of life. For on a human level, the words we speak are there and they're almost immediately gone. But because God is above the sun, you could say, then our words are profoundly meaningful. He listens. He hears. You see? Let me try and put it another way. Imagine for a moment that God was not in heaven, but was simply something that we ourselves had created, which is obviously something which is forbidden in the Bible because it's an act of idolatry. But if God was an idol, then he would be what theologians also technically say as not being transcendent, but imminent. That is, he would be just as we are here on earth. For if God were imminent, then we'd all of our then we'd need all of the words that we could think of. Because the thing which we which uh, we created would have to be motivated to move, to respond. It would have to be fed, it'd have to be coaxed, it'd have to be coerced into action. That's idolatry, isn't it? That's what pagans do. They feed the little statue. Because the little statue even though it doesn't have a mouth, it really needs to eat more food. So it'll be more willing and more agreeable to giving me what I want. Does nobody see that the food rots and they wash the, the stone away and the statue doesn't get any bigger and he doesn't get any thinner because it's a statue and it doesn't move, it doesn't see, it doesn't speak, it's nothing. Although there is a demonic influence behind it. How different is the God of the Bible? He is not only imminent, he is not only with us, but he is also gloriously transcendent. He is above us. He sees all. He sovereignly rules over the the earth, the sky and the seas. Listen to this word from the prophet Daniel. He says, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. That's the God we pray to. That's the God who hears. That's what the power and nature and character of our God is like. He is altogether holy and majestic. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that God is he who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. That's what our Lord is like. To give you a sense of this, of how holy and majestic God is, do you remember those old videos of the atomic testing? where they'd either get the military to turn their backs to the atomic blast or they'd put on sunnies and, you know, the blast would go and they'd be rocked a little bit by the, you know, the wind from the atomic blast. And today we go, oh, goodness, I can't believe they did that. Imagine standing at ground zero where the bomb goes off. That's what it's like to be in the holy presence of God. Can you imagine standing there at ground zero and boom, it goes off. Yeah, that's okay. I'm going to stand here and I'm going to withdraw this. That is nothing 
nothing compared to the holy, eternal power of God. It's like you are standing at ground zero and the one whose presence alone could destroy you is there, but you can approach him because of Jesus. Because that God is the one who is the word that became flesh. The one who suffered and died and rose again. The one who sits at God's right hand until now. All of his enemies are turned into a footstool for his feet. The one who died to save us. That's him. All of which means that whenever we come before him, we should guard our steps and in particular... When we approach him in prayer, we should make sure that our words are few. We should come before him to listen rather than to babble, to build a tower of our own to God. That's the ultimate act of actually rebellion. Solomon says in verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 6, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? This is such an important principle, friends, especially when we come to God in prayer. Because when we acknowledge who he is and what he is really like, then we should be really, really careful as to what we say. If you can't take your words back before people, what are you going to do when you say it before God? Can I just say, this is the problem with people that really unhelpfully encourage people to just vent all of their anger at God, unfiltered. Do you know who you're talking to? Yes, you can express your grief and your pain, but just remember who you're talking to. Our attitude, our attitude should be the same as that of Job. Remember how he constantly complains that with all of his suffering, all of his children dead, all of his, all of his goods taken away, and we know, don't we, from chapter 1, he didn't deserve any of it. God was putting him to the test. God initiated to Satan going, hey, have you considered Job over here? You should go have a crack. And remember how Job says, you know, I just, if only I, had the, if only I had the chance to present my case to God, that would be a day. <laughs> Job gets that chance. And you know what Job says when he gets that chance? If only I knew where to find him, I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. But then when Job finally gets the chance to meet with God and he sees who he truly is, he says this, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, I will say no more. You see, God never says to Job, hey, you know what? I know you've gone through hell on earth here, but I had this deal with Satan. I said that you would keep trusting me even though you took all of these things. He doesn't tell him that. Do you know the argument God uses? I'm sorry, who are you? Did you make the world? Do you keep the birds flying in the air every day? Do you set up kings and bring them down? And then Job goes, oh, yeah, look, I'm really sorry. Forgot who I was talking. No, 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 let's go a bit further. Where were you when I made the world? 
because you are so knowledgeable about how all of this works. Do you want to tell me how this all, all functions? In other words, the truth of it is this. This is the thing we have to come to. There is a God in heaven and you are not him. There is only one creator. There is only one king. When we truly perceive God for who he really is, then that's the response we should all have. We should guard our steps. We should shut our mouths. We should fall at his feet. We should accept good and ill from the Lord's hand because he knows what he's doing. And in reverence and awe, we should acknowledge that he is so much greater than we could ever think or imagine. Well, that's the first point. Following on from this is what I've referred to as reckless or worthless worship. What Solomon addresses next has to do with the taking and fulfilling of vows. Now, there's all kinds of promises that we make before God, which the Lord will hold us accountable for, aren't there? For instance, there are promises which we make to one another when we get married. Again, it's strange, isn't it? It's just words. Just. Or there are promises which we make at our child's or maybe even our own baptism. Again, words, this time with water. Or then there's more voluntary times when we make promises before God and we become members of a local church. Again, just words, although Simon has lately been providing helpful plaques with words. Or there's being set apart for full-time ministry if you get ordained or set apart for something. But verse 4 also involves something I think broader still, such as when we might make a special vow to commit ourselves to giving a certain amount or maybe to a certain project. And as such, the messenger that Solomon refers to in verse 6 is probably the temple messenger who collected the money that worshippers had previously promised to give. Actually, I think this goes broader still. Let me give you an example. I had an elder in the congregation in my first church at Wewall. And um, he'd grown up in a Christian family. But as teenagers are wont to do, he went away to sow his wild oats and came back a couple of years later realising how fruitless wild oats are. (laughs) Waste of time. He stood up in church one day this is many years later. He'd had a, he's had, he still has a wife and four children. But he made a vow, and he didn't need to do this, but he asked me if I could, if he could. He made a vow before the church that he would never drink alcohol again. Now, he himself said alcohol's not a sin, but it was for him. For him, it was something that had caused him so much trouble in his former non-Christian wayward life that every time he'd have a drink, he was just tempted to go back down that path of destruction. And so he made a public promise to make good on that commitment. And I tell you, you could have heard a pin drop in church. Small country town, one of the leading farmers, 
saying he's never going to drink alcohol again. That's a big call. And every party we went to, everybody was watching. <laughs> What's Dougal going to do? Would you like a drink, Dougal? No, I'm happy with my soda water. I'm just glad he promised or didn't promise that he'd only drink soda water. What a horrible way to live. <laughs> but here's the point. It's no good making a grandiose promise like that and everybody being around you going, wow, what a great commitment. If you don't fulfill it, it would have been better for him to have not stood up in church and done such a dramatic thing and, and not fulfill it. Now, thankfully, he's a man of integrity and to this day, he has never dropped, touched a drop of alcohol again. It's just like what, you know, another example is Ananias and Sapphira did in Acts chapter 5 when they claimed, remember they, they claimed, again, it's just words, but they claimed to be giving all of the proceeds of the sale of their property because they'd seen Barnabas do a similar thing and it looked so good for Barnabas, the son of encouragement, that they thought, well, we'll do a similar thing. But that wasn't the whole truth, was it? Let me be clear. They didn't have to give all of their money to the church. It's that they said that they did. The problem was, though, they were claiming that it was the whole of what they said. They didn't have to give anything. And do you remember what happened to them? They immediately faced the Lord's supernatural act of judgment and were struck down dead. That's how serious. What a timely reminder of just how seriously the Lord takes verbal promises that we make. Because if we promise something before God and then we fail to actually do it, then the scriptures warn that the Lord will not only be angry with us, but he will destroy the work of our hands. Not that we'll be condemned and go to hell, I think, but that we'll be in danger of experiencing his temporal judgment and discipline in this world. Because God hates hypocrisy. Which means rather than experiencing his blessing, you end up experiencing his curse. What kind of reckless promises might we be tempted to make? Well, there's lots of them, isn't there? I can still vividly remember as a young child going to Little Athletics and I was earnestly asking God to help me to win this hurdles race. I was so desperate that I said, Lord, if you enable me to win this race, I will become a missionary. I naively thought that that was the greatest possible sacrifice I could make. Years later, I realised that being a missionary was one of the greatest callings you could receive. And I wasn't offering God anything. But on a more serious level, from time to time, I've personally taken vows not to watch certain TV shows, which are really popular, even amongst people at church. Or at other times, I've committed myself to giving a certain amount of money to church or various projects. And like, if you've done this yourself, you'll know how how sorely tempted you are at points to go, maybe I was a little bit too rash in making that promise. 
But what Solomon is saying here is absolutely true. It's much better to not make a vow than it is to make a vow and not fulfil it. You don't have to make a vow. But if you do, don't be a hypocrite. For the Lord will hold us accountable as to what we say. The Lord Jesus, can I just say, goes even further than what Solomon does. He says, but I tell you that men and women will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. By your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Now the unbelieving world would scoff at this and some might even object that maybe Jesus is being legalistic. But because there is a God in heaven and we are on earth, we need to realise that he takes everything we say, every promise we make, very, very, very seriously. For our words, or for as our words increase, so do their lack of meaning. And rather than being a sign of spiritual maturity, they're actually a form of idolatrous paganism. The Apostle James says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. You see, because everything under the sun is vanity, then we should be careful with our words. Yes, God is eternal and yes, our worship of him will last forever. But because we've been saved through his son, that means that what you and I say with our mouths is incredibly important. As soon as I mention that, it's hard not to be immediately convicted as to how far we've fallen short, isn't it? Because we all fail in so many ways. We use too many words with God and unloving words with the people around us. We gossip, we slander. When we pray, we go on and on as though God doesn't care and isn't really in control. And how dishonouring to the Lord is all of that. Are you convicted as to how much we need God's mercy and forgiveness? I am. Like many of you, we have this plaque in our home which says, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. During the week, we had a congregational meeting, which I think was probably one of the most difficult I've ever endured. And Des exhorted us all to speak and act in a way that honours Christ and that the non-believing world would be impacted by. It was a great reminder. And I think it was conducted in that way, as hard as it was. Do you know what Des said was true? In complete transparency, we left the doors open. Someone from the world came in on Wednesday night and sat at the back for 10 or 15 minutes and listened to everything that was being said. Would Christ be pleased with our speech? 
Would Christ be honoured if he listened to every conversation? Because he does. When you speak to one another, are you aware that the Lord Jesus is listening? And when you pray, do you pray in faith, giving honour to God by being circumspect with your words? My brothers and sisters in Christ, remember this. God is in heaven. You are on earth. And because of that, we should draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So guard your steps. Let your words be few. And give unto the Lord all the honour and glory and praise. Well, on that note, let's turn to God now and pray. Lord, what a powerful word you have spoken to us this morning. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that they are so comprehensive as to what we need to hear and to obey. Father, we pray for forgiveness where we have failed you because you are altogether holy and we are not. We pray for forgiveness and renewal that we will be the people you want us to be. And we pray this for the glory of your name, that it might please you in every way. Amen.